Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. First grade and below, you may leave now to go to Kids Own Worship. Um, the rest of you can open to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, I got you kind of fooled there. We're going to start at the beginning. We're going to start Acts over again, okay? You guys ready? No. We've been in it for a year. I do want to draw your attention. Somebody did give me a prayer request, and I forgot to pray for earlier. And this is a prayer request for Bobby Blake. is in the hospital this past week and needs prayer for her pain management. And so I think we need to honor this request. And so let me just pray for this real briefly. As our kids are leaving and you're turning to Acts 1, let's pray for Bobby. Bobby, Father, we pray for Bobby as... Um, this person is in the hospital and needs help and, and pain management. I pray, Lord, that you would just come minister grace to her and, and heal her and do whatever you see fit in her life to show yourself strong in this situation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 1. We'll eventually get to the very end of Acts, but we are coming to our conclusion. This is the last sermon in the book of Acts. We've spent almost a year on this. And when I was growing up, one of my favorite movies as a little kid in the 80s, and maybe you've seen this really cheesy movie with bad special effects, but it's called The Never-Ending Story. It's the story about a young boy that goes on an adventure and he opens up this book and he's catapulted into this magic land called Fantasia with a luck dragon. And it's a story that just never, never ends. It's the never-ending story. How many of you guys, when you were growing up, liked those books that had the write-your-own-ending books where you could choose which way you'd like to go, how you wanted the story to end? You were in the driver's seat of the never-ending story. How many of you, we'll do it by a show of hands, have read The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, or maybe you've seen a few of the movies? The very last book in The Chronicles of Narnia is called The Last Battle. And the last sentence in the last book of the last of the series reads this way. All their life in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. There's something captivating about a never-ending story, a story that goes on and on and on. That's why we as Americans like sequels. We like the tension of a cliffhanger ending. We want to see what happens next. And I want to tell you this morning that the book of Acts ends with a cliffhanger. There's no real tidy ending to the book of Acts. And over the past year, we've dug into this book, and we've looked at it in depth, and we've gone verse by verse, and we've got to step back as we conclude and ask a very important question. What in the world is this book about? I mean, you can lose the forest for the trees. What's Luke's main point in writing the book of Acts? What, what is the purpose well, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he tells us. So let's read this very famous passage of Scripture. This is the thesis of the entire book of Acts. It's set us on a trajectory the past year. We're going to come back to it in the very conclusion. Acts 1, 8. Jesus is telling his disciples, But you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what's the book of Acts about? It's very, very simple. Here's what the book's about. It's about the advancement of the gospel of the kingdom of God to the ends of the known world at that time through the preaching and teaching of the early church under the power of the Holy Spirit. This book is about the advancement of the gospel of the kingdom, starting in Jerusalem, moving to Judea, moving to Samaria, moving to the ends of the earth. And that's how the book is structured. In Acts chapter 1 through 7, it focuses on Jerusalem. In Acts chapters 8 through 12, it focuses on Judea and Samaria. You get to Acts chapter 13, Paul launches on his first missionary journey. 13 through 20, you've got Paul's three missionary journeys going to the gospel and the known world at that time. We get to chapters 21 through 27, where we've been for the past few months. Paul's on trial, Paul's in prison, Paul's on this dangerous sea voyage as we saw last week. And finally, we get to chapter 28, where Paul gets to where he's wanted to go, Rome. The greatest city in the known world at that time, the most powerful city, the most prestigious city. He's been to Corinth, he's been to Athens, he's been to Philippi, he's been to Thessalonica, but now he wants to go to Rome. And so how does this book end? If you remember last week, Paul was tempest-tossed on this ship. They landed off the coast of Malta. He got snake-bitten. And then, if you remember from a few weeks ago, Jesus said to Paul, you must, you must testify to the gospel in Rome. So we know that Paul's going to get to Rome, but how's this book going to end? So let's flip back to the very end, Acts chapter 28. Let's pick up where we left off last week. Let's pick up in verse 11. Acts chapter 28, verse 11, Paul finally gets to where he's been having his eyes fixed for the past few years, Rome. Acts chapter 28, verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Petuli. There we found brothers and we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to the sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Okay, Paul's in Malta for three months. He gets on this ship that has the two twin gods, uh, the sons of, of Zeus, the sea god. Uh, you've got Castor 
and Pollux were these two uh, gods that were the gods of smooth sailing. And so Paul gets on the ship, and we kind of have to laugh at ourselves after last week. Does Paul need the ship gods, the sea gods, to help him on his voyage? No, he's got the sovereign living God. But he, he sails, and he finally gets to Rome. He's greeted by these brothers. They encourage him. They strengthen him. And the first thing uh, Paul does is he goes to the Jews. Because you remember, why is Paul in prison in the first place? Let's go back and review for a moment. He's been charged with blasphemy. He's been charged with causing riots. He's been charged with with, uh, desecrating the temple. He's been charged with with going against the nation of Israel and being offensive to these Jews. And so they they bring him on trial here in Jerusalem. And finally, he's he's in Rome. And he goes before these Jewish leaders. And he says... I'm not going to go to Caesar first, but I'm going to go to my fellow Jews and I'm going to say, hey guys, I'm here to lay my case out before you. And what he finds out is these guys have never heard of Paul. We haven't had any letters come from Judea. We haven't had any letters come saying that you've done anything evil. We have no idea really why you're here, Paul, or why you're in chains, but we want to hear more about what you're, what's going on in your life. So please tell us. Tell us why you've, you've come here, Paul. And so Paul begins to unpack for them what Paul always does. It should be no surprise. And so let's look at how the book ends, and you're not going to see anything different. If I say anything different this morning than what you've heard for the past 12 months, then you, you, you may have been just you checked out for 12 months, okay? So what Paul does, how the book of Acts ends, we're not going to see anything new or earth-shattering. So let's see how it ends. Let's pick up in verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him and his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he had said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Okay, Paul does three things here in this closing chapter that's nothing new. It's nothing new that we haven't seen. What's the first thing he does? Back in verse 20, the first thing he does is he tells them about the hope of Israel. Now we've seen Peter do this. We've seen Philip do this. We've seen Apollos do this. We've seen Stephen do this. We've seen these guys say to their Jewish brothers, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the hope of Israel. We're going to show you from the prophets. We're going to show you from the Old Testament. How many times in Acts have we seen them going back to the Old Testament to say, Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah? So Paul does that with his Jewish brothers. Secondly, He expounds upon the kingdom of God. Notice in verse 23, it says, From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law and from the prophets. He expounded. He opened the scriptures. He went line by line and verse by verse of the Old Testament, spending time showing them 
that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. But he says something very specific. He says he was testifying to them about the kingdom of God. Now, I don't expect anybody here to remember the very first sermon I preached on Acts back last September. But I said one of the themes in the book of Acts is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, it says, He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. It's the advancement of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, what does the kingdom of God mean? It means that there's a king of the kingdom. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the ruler. Jesus is the sovereign. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. All those Old Testament kings that couldn't live up to to God's standard, and even King David, Jesus is the ultimate king. And this is nothing new in the book of Acts. So, this morning, we're going to do a little bit of a sword drill. So get prepared We're going to look through the book of Acts and see how some themes have showed up. So go back to Acts chapter 8 and just be prepared to start flipping a lot this morning because we're going to see these themes over and over again. The kingdom of God. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Acts chapter 8 verse 12. Acts chapter 8 verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about what? The kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Turn to Acts chapter 14 for just a moment. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Acts 14, 22. It says there, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, verse 8. In Acts chapter 19, verse 8, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about what? The kingdom of God. In chapter 20, verse 25, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. It's about the kingdom of God with Jesus as the king of the kingdom. And, and all through it, Acts, they're proclaiming the kingdom of God, but there's something very sad that happens here. These Jews don't believe. As a matter of fact, Paul indicts them by quoting Isaiah chapter 6. When he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, 9 through 10, he says, You guys are hearing, but you're not really hearing. You're seeing, but you're not really seeing. You're taking in the information, but there is no transformation. Your, Your ears have gone dull. Your hearts have become hardened. That's an interesting thing to happen. To take in information, but have no transformation. Do you realize that's kind of scary? You could come into church week after week. You can be in Bible studies week after week. You can hear the word of God preached. You can listen to Christian radio. You can be exposed to the information all day long and never have the transformation that comes with believing in Jesus Christ alone. There's a big difference between information and and transformation. And that's what he's saying about these guys. You guys are getting the information, but you're not hearing it. You're not receiving it. You're dull. You are, your hearts are hardened. But then there's a promise. God does promise something there at the very end. He says, if you would turn, if you would repent, the, 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 the hope of repentance is always given in the book of Acts. It's always given in the gospel. If you would repent, if you return, then I would heal you. Then I would save you. But yet, to this day, among the Jewish people, the ethnic Jewish people, 
there is a hardening. There is a dullness. They don't accept Jesus as their Messiah. And they've been callous to the truth. And so Paul says, I'm not giving up on you Jews, you're my fellow people, but I'm going to the Gentiles. That's where God's called me, to go to the Gentiles. And in a way, Paul does this to make his Jewish brothers and sisters jealous. Now you have to remember, Paul's a Jew. Paul would have given up his salvation, per se, in order for the Jews to be saved. But he goes to the Gentiles as a way to provoke the Jews to jealousy. And he tells us that in Romans chapter 11. In Romans 11, 11 through 14, listen to what Paul says about his Jewish brothers and sisters. So he says, So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs of the end times, but I do know this, that somehow during the end times there's going to be a major conversion, salvation of Jewish people and that they will believe and they will come to faith in Christ. But what Paul's saying to them right here and what we kind of see in our world today is there's this blindness, there's this hardness, there's this callousness to the truth. And Paul says, my ministry ultimately is to the Gentiles. I'm not abandoning you Jews, but my ministry is to the Gentiles because they're going to listen. We are the time of the Gentiles right now. And thirdly, okay, he preaches about the kingdom of God. He talks about the hope of Israel. What's the last thing we see there? Verse 30. Back in chapter 28, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. And what's he doing? He's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's preaching about Jesus. He's under house arrest for two whole years and whoever wants to come within earshot, what's Paul doing? He is preaching. He's proclaiming. He's talking about Jesus. Now don't think of preaching as a guy standing up behind a pulpit and yelling at you. That's what I do every week, but preaching you can do. Preaching just means opening your mouth and telling people about Jesus. So do we see a theme of preaching in the Bible? Do we see a theme of preaching in Acts? Has there been preaching? Well, let's go back and look. Let's let's go back to Acts chapter 4 for just a moment. Acts chapter 4, verse 2. I'm not going to belabor the point, but I want you to see these themes. Acts chapter 4, verse 2. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They're preaching and teaching Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 42. And chapter 5, verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And chapter 8, verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And chapter 9, verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He's the Son of God. In chapter 13, verse 5, I know I'm going fast. You can get my sermon manuscript out on the table afterwards. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues. Chapter 14, verse 7. It says, and they were continued to preach the gospel. I could go on and on and on about how all throughout the book of Acts, they're preaching and they're teaching Jesus. So what's the book of Acts about? It's about the advancement of the gospel of the kingdom of God through the preaching and teaching of the word of God. But here's a question. How does it happen? 
How does it happen? How does the book of Acts end? It ends with two very important words that are two key themes throughout the book of Acts also that we've seen over and over again. How does Acts end? Look back there at chapter 28. Verse 31, the very last verse, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with what? All, you say it with me, boldness. Have we not talked about boldness for the past year? Boldness and without hindrance. Paul is speaking boldly the kingdom of God and the gospel. Now what is boldness? It's another key word that shows up in Acts. It's that Holy Spirit empowered passion and confidence to speak the truth. It comes from the Holy Spirit giving you the ability to to speak the truth, to be bold in your witness. As a matter of fact, Paul prayed for this. In Ephesians chapter 6, 19 through 20, Paul prayed for boldness. He says, pray also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul's saying this whole, this whole gospel of the kingdom is about boldly proclaiming Jesus to people that need to hear the gospel. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 8-9, through 9, Paul says this, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. He's saying the word of God is not chained. The word of God needs to go out with boldness. So Paul ends the book of Acts here. Luke ends it with Paul preaching the gospel to whoever's going to hear him boldly. Boldly. Have we seen that in the book of Acts? Well, let's, ch- let's just flip back to chapter 4 just for a moment. This is the last little sword drill we're going to do this morning. So Acts chapter 4, verse 13. I want you to see these words. Acts 4.13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. They are bold. Chapter 4, verse 31, and they, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Okay, go to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 27 and 28. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. How about chapter 13, verse 46? And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary for the word of God to be spoken to you First, they spoke out boldly. Chapter 14, verse 3. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Chapter 18, verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Chapter 19, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And then chapter 26 26, we saw this a few weeks ago when he's before King Agrippa. He says, For the king knows about these things. To him I speak boldly. Boldly. Acts is about the advancement of the gospel of the kingdom through the preaching and teaching ministry of the early church to the ends of the known world in the boldness that the Holy Spirit equips us to do that. 
But I'm left with a question that plagues me as I end the book of Acts. What have we been waiting for for the past three chapters? Paul is on his way to Rome to appeal to who? Caesar. Does he ever appeal to Caesar in the book of Acts? No. So what happened? We really don't know. We have to defer to church history, to the early traditions. It's not in Scripture, but here's what most early church historians believe. After the two years, Paul was released. He was able to go preach freely where he wanted to go in Spain, spend some time in Crete, had another fruitful ministry that we really don't know about. And then, after that time, he was rearrested and he was decapitated. He was beheaded by Nero. But I think it's very interesting that Acts ends with the tension because for three chapters there's the buildup to testifying before Caesar and he never gets there. And so you've got this mid-air hanging out ending that just kind of leaves you hanging. Okay, Paul's in prison for two years and he's preaching boldly. Why, why the abrupt ending of Acts? Why does it just end like that? Even the grammar tells you it ends weird. It ends with an adverb. Actually, it literally ends unhinderedly. You normally don't end a sentence with an adverb. So here's the way Acts ends. Acts should end with a dot, dot, dot. A dot, dot, dot. So let me ask you a question. How does the history of the church end? It doesn't until Jesus comes back. So right now... We are the church living in Acts chapter 29. And you're like, Sean, I don't see Acts chapter 29 in my Bible. Right. Acts chapter 29 is being written as we speak. It's been written for the past 2,000 years. We're right in the middle of this story. Acts ends with a cliffhanger ending because God is not done with the story yet. We are in the middle of the story right now as God's church, and he is calling us to carry on what's happened in Acts. We're to carry on the advancement of the kingdom of the, uh, of the God, the advancement of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth. Think of all the famous names that we've, that we've seen in Acts. You've got Peter, the leader of the church, that powerful preacher. You've got Stephen that was stoned. You've got Philip, the evangelist that went to the Ethiopian eunuch. You had Barnabas, the son of encouragement. You have Apollos, that great apologist. You had you had. Timothy and Silas and, and Luke himself and Paul. They started the story at Pentecost. But yet, the story's not ended. We're in the flow of the story until Jesus comes back. Acts doesn't end because, in a sense, we supply the ending. Now, God is sovereign and he's going to bring it to a close, but we are in the ending of Acts. We're invited into this unfinished story to continue what was started in the early church. That's why it ends with a dot, dot, dot. The story, in fact, is being written right as we speak. John Stott says this, the acts of the apostles have long ago finished, but the acts of the followers of Jesus will continue until the end of the world, and their words will spread to the ends of the earth. So we're in Acts 29, living out the truths that we see in the early church, and God's not done writing the story. As a matter of fact, we're right in the thick of the story, and as we think about being in the thick of the story, we've got to ask ourselves some questions. If Acts is about these things, then let's turn the mirror upon ourselves individually and turn the mirror upon ourselves corporately as a church family and say, okay, if we're in the flow of Acts, 
How are we doing? So if Acts is about the kingdom of God, let's ask a very simple question. Is Christ your king? Is he your absolute Lord and Savior? Is he your master? Is he your ruler? Do you bow your life and submit everything to the lordship of Jesus Christ as the king? He's the king of the kingdom, and we're called to submit our entire lives to him. Listen to the radical words of Jesus. These are radical words when you take them at face value of what Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is saying to us. In Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 25, listen to the words of Jesus. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That's the kingship of Christ. Jesus is saying, in order to follow me, it's all or nothing. You've got to give up everything to follow me as, my, as the absolute sovereign and king over your life. Are you bowing the knee to King Jesus and saying, I'm living my life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm submitting to him to rule my life. He's the king of the kingdom, and my life centers everything around my king. The Acts also is about boldness. Not being ashamed of the gospel. You all would agree with me. We live in a culture that's ashamed of the gospel. We live among people that are ashamed of the gospel. But think about how many times in Acts, what are they doing the whole book? They are boldly teaching and preaching and talking about Jesus. I mean, almost in every chapter, you can't get away from the bold preaching and teaching of Jesus. Right after Jesus says these words about taking up our cross and following him, in Luke chapter 9, 26, listen to what else he says. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Are we ashamed of Jesus? Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 2 Timothy 1, 8-9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Do you see a theme? How about 1 Peter 4, 16? Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. More than ever, we as Christians are called to not be ashamed of the gospel. If we are in Acts 29, and all we see throughout the book of Acts is bold proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth, why in the world would we stop what was started over 2,000 years and back down and, and being ashamed of the gospel? We need to be bold in our witness. So we've got these issues, the kingdom of God, the boldness of the proclamation of the gospel, But there's one vital element that sometimes we miss in our individualistic, very consumeristic, privatistic American psyche. We are called to do this together. We are the church family. We are a body of believers intertwined together in fellowship, and we're called to do this together as the body of Christ. Go back to Acts chapter 2. What 
What is God's plan for the church? Is it a bunch of privatized people going out and trying to do this on their own, in their own power? Or is it the Holy Spirit bringing together a group of people called his church to do this together in fellowship, in unity, in the power of God as the people of God? Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and 47. And they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching, fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's another key word in Acts. It's the word devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to the Lord's Supper. What does the word devoted mean? It means a passionate, persistent, consistent, zealous, consistent pursuit of being together. A tenacious, I want to be together as God's people. Let me just give you a newsflash. We are a church family. Whether you feel that way or not, we are a family. You have no choice. If you are connected in some way to Emmanuel Baptist Church, you are part of this family. Weird cousins and uncles and all. You can't say, I'm not part of this family. You may not feel a part. You may choose not to be a part. But intrinsically, you are a part of the family of God. We are in this together. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 12, 24 and 27? But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Notice Paul doesn't say you may be the body of Christ if you feel like it. No, he says you are the body of Christ. And notice the word he says here. There should be care for one another. If one person suffers, all of us suffer. If one person rejoices, all of us rejoice together. We are in this together. We are intertwined. We are the body of Christ. We are a church family. And that word may be scary for some of you, church family, because maybe you come from a dysfunctional family and all you can think about in family is, is turmoil. Let me just warn you, Emmanuel is a dysfunctional family. Okay? If you're looking for a perfect church with no dysfunctionality, we'll have to wait till we get to heaven. Okay? Now, I don't say that we're dysfunctional in the sense that we purposely try to be dysfunctional. What I'm trying to say is that we're all sinners. The church is not the building. You've heard me say that for seven years. You do not go to church. You may go to a service at a building at 300 Ballpark Road, but this building is not the church. We are the church. 
We are the body of Christ, and we're called to love one another, encourage one another, support one another, come alongside one another, proclaim the gospel to one another, be bold with one another, do this together. Now, I love what Charles Spurgeon had to say. Leave it to Spurgeon to give us some great words. Here's what he said. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should have never joined one at all. At the moment that I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it. For it would not have been a perfect church after I became a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, it's the dearest place on earth to us. I will be the first to admit that Emmanuel Baptist Church is not the perfect place. I will be the first to admit that we have some weaknesses. I will be the first to admit that I will disappoint you. I will be the first to admit that you may be wounded here. I'll be the first to admit that you may not like everything that happens here. I may be the first to admit that that there may be some things about our church that just don't set right with you. And I understand that. But I also want to encourage you to say, regardless of all that, can you say like Spurgeon, it's still the dearest place on earth. It's vital to my spiritual growth. Now, what marked the early church from Acts chapter 2 here? Power, prayer, evangelism, unity, being devoted together, worship, awe, people coming together and having a common purpose, fellowship. Does that sound like Emmanuel Baptist Church? Just ask some questions. Are we experiencing the power of God in our church? Are we being faithful at advancing the gospel through this church? Are we marked by fervent prayer? Are we glorifying God in all we do as the body of Christ? Are we united together in unity and fellowship? And let me just add one other thing about that. We all like that fun stuff about the church. Oh, I love the fellowship. Oh yeah, I'm on board with the missions. I'm on board with helping one another. But what if I were to say to you, hey, guess what? If you sign up to be part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, we may suffer persecution. Anybody want to join? Are we prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Are we a communion of the saints? That may be a weird term you never heard before. What's a communion of the saints? Sounds kind of Catholic-y, doesn't it? Communion of the saints. Communion just means we have a common life. We have a common doctrine. We have a common value. We have a common purpose. We are in community. We are Christians who've been called together in community. We are the communion of the saints. We are are communing together, and then we're communing with God. That's why when we come to the Lord's Supper, what do we call it? Communion. There's a vertical aspect to communion, and there's a horizontal aspect to communion. I think we understand the vertical aspect. The vertical aspect is we commune with God. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are worshiping God. We are praising God. We're thanking God. We're giving our lives to God. We're receiving from God. It's, it's us and God. I think we understand that. And you could go home and you could celebrate the Lord's Supper in the privacy of your home and take your little bread and your little juice in your, in your living room, and that would be so sad. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but I'm saying that's not the way God intended it to be. It is to be done in community because in the New Testament, they ate it together as a meal, together as a family, where they came together on the Lord's Day and they profoundly symbolized not only their love for God, but their love for each 
other. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are visually reminding ourselves of who we are. So who are we, Emmanuel Baptist Church? Let's let Peter define that for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, and if I could translate from the southern Greek, but y'all, it's the way it's translated there in the original language, you guys, us, are what? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that's who we are. We're a chosen people. We're a royal priesthood. We're a people belonging to God. We're people that God has called out of darkness into his marvelous light to proclaim his excellencies as we live out Acts chapter 29 together as his people. That's who we are. We proclaim the excellencies. The Lord's Supper is visual. It's a show and tell, but it's also a taste. Why do you think the Lord's Supper involves taste? I mean, we could just pass the elements around and look at them. I mean, you could look at the bread and look at the juice and, okay, that's cool, it's bread, it's juice, I'm looking at it. But what did Jesus say? Take it. Ingest it. It's a metaphor for the fact that we taste and see that the Lord is good. And may I remind you that we do this together. We can become very privatized as Americans, and I'm going to step on some toes here, and I'm going to make you feel uncomfortable, but that's my job as your pastor. Sometimes when we take the Lord's Supper, it can become so privatized that all you do is you curl up in your own little world and you close your eyes and you take the world, or you shut the world out and it's just you and God and you're there and, you can, and it doesn't even matter whether you're, there's people around you. You're so focused on you and God. And I'm not saying that's inappropriate. What I'm saying is it's a communion of the saints. So I would challenge you this morning as we take the Lord's Supper, instead of being so focused on you and God, why not open your eyes and look around at your brothers and sisters and say, you know what? I am thankful that God has placed me in a body of believers where people love me, where people encourage me, that I can come together and be supported. I'm going to take communion as a family, and we're going to sit around the table, and we're going to look at each other. Ooh, that's going to make us uncomfortable. That's going to make us uncomfortable because we're so privatized. I come to church, I take my Lord's Supper, I leave. No, this is communion. We're taken as a family. It's a visual reminder of who we are as God's people. Think about Acts 1-8 for just a moment. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in, Jude- in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other ends of the earth. How in the world can any one person do that by themselves? You cannot. God has called us as the church to do that. You will receive power, and you will go out, and you will be a witness And we need to do that together. It really takes the pressure off when you think about it. It takes the pressure off of me because I know I'm not in this alone. If I thought I was the only one out here in Sterling that was proclaiming the gospel and I was the only one that had, I had to get the encouragement from myself and I had to go do all this stuff myself, I would be so desperately um, weak and so desperately, maybe the word would be insane if I'm not already there yet, that I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have a church family. I don't know what I would do if I did not have a church family to be able to do what God's called me to do. So here's my prayer for us. As we conclude the beginning, it's not the ending of Acts, it's the beginning of the ending of Acts because it's not done yet. As we, as, we, as we celebrate Acts 29, as we're in the flow of things, here's my prayer for us as a church. I really want us to experience the overwhelming power of God. 
And I would be praying that God would be so pleased to use us as a church to advance his gospel. We'd be faithful to the gospel. And I pray that we would also suffer well. There's going to be days of suffering ahead. We need to be prepared to suffer well. My prayer is also that we would practice the one another's, encourage one another, love one another, welcome one another, accept one another, pray for one another. We practice the one another's, and we would not see ourselves as some loosely connected group of individuals that come in here privatized for two hours on Sunday, and we did the church thing, and we walk out the door, and I did my deal. That is not church. That's an event like a sporting event that you go to, and you pay your ticket, and you rah-rah, and you leave. That is not church. Church is, we are interconnected as a family. We're interconnected as people that have been bought by God. We are one. We are unified. We're in this together. If one part rejoices, we all rejoice. If one part suffers, we all suffer. We are in this together. And so we come together to take the Lord's Supper saying, we're in this together. We're a church family. Praise God that you have a church family. Let's do life together in the power of the Holy Spirit under the Lordship of Christ for the glory of the Father. If there's anything that we've learned from Acts, it's that we need the power of God and we need the presence of God and the protection of God. And we're in this together. Let me ask you to bow your heads as we prepare to take our Lord's Supper this morning, as we prepare to take communion. I just feel led at this point for you to pray in your heart to thank God for your church. I know that may sound real self-aggrandizing as your pastor, and I'm not trying to draw attention to myself, and I'm not saying that we're perfect or we're that, all that, but have you stopped and just praise God that you're part of a family? Have you praised him for placing you with these people at this time, in this place? and that you're not alone. And that when we take communion together, we're, we're, we're giving a show and tell to each other that we belong together under the Lordship of Christ. I would pray that you'd spend some time just praising God for your family, your church family. Maybe you need boldness. Maybe you need to submit to Jesus as your king. I don't know how... The Holy Spirit is ministering to each soul this morning, but I do know that once the word of God is preached, there demands a response. So let's spend some time in quiet, communing vertically with our Father through Jesus. I would ask at this time that our elders and deacons and those that have been asked to help with the elements would come forward at this time. If you're new to Emmanuel, let me just give you some explanation about how we do the Lord's Supper. Number one, this is only for believers in Jesus Christ only. If you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Christ alone for salvation, out of, out of respect for what Jesus instituted, we ask that you kindly refrain from taking the Lord's Supper. Now, this is an institution that only Christ has given to his church. So we would ask that as the elements are being passed, don't receive the elements, but receive Christ first. 
And after the service, if you need to come down and talk to one of us about what that means. So first and foremost, it's for those who have claimed Christ as their Lord and Savior. Number two, the Bible says to examine yourselves before you take it. Time to confess sin and to seek the cleansing forgiveness of the Lord. And number three, just practically, the way it's done is the, the, the cups are together, so the wafer and the drink are in the same um, packet, not packet, but they're, they're, they're stacked together. So if you would just take those out separately, and then we're going to take it as a family this morning, so please refrain from taking it until I give instructions. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, may we understand that we are a church family, that you've knit us together as one. We may not feel like it. At times, Lord, I don't feel like it. But I don't want to base it on my feelings. I want to base it on what you say about us. We are a family. You are the body of Christ is what you said. And we are individually members of it. Help me, Lord, personally to suffer what other people suffer and to rejoice when other people rejoice. May we truly have the power of God in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.